Good morning. You turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 27. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. (laughs) There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all of the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some who were standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out even, had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Amen. Thank you, Nixon. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Here we are, Good Friday. Jesus, our Savior, is on the cross bearing our sin and shame. Let's pray as we begin to explore this text. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And today as we, as we open this up, God, we just pray that you would speak to us as we reflect on the death and life of your son. We pray this in your name. Amen.
throughout this account, Matthew is, is picking up on things said by the prophets, psalmists, and Moses to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is decisively taking our sin upon his shoulders. I don't know if you've heard that song before, How Deep the Father's Love by Stuart Townen. But I know often we sing a familiar song or we hear a familiar story and it doesn't strike us. Or maybe we hear it and we're like, yeah, that sounds good. I like that story. But we don't grab hold of it and let it penetrate deep within our hearts to the point where the implications kind of begin to take effect in our lives. What can we grab hold of out of this text that will make us cry out like the Roman centurion, surely this man was the son of God. First, let's behold the man upon the cross. Now, Matthew is writing particularly to Jewish people. Uh, and in his account of the, work, of the life and work of Jesus, he's weaving together, making it clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king of a king of Israel, the one come to set things right. And so he basically says that Jesus is the one of whom Genesis speaks, and I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. God says this as he's speaking to the serpent, who we know is Satan. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so Matthew's finding links that God has placed all over the Hebrew scriptures that make this clear. And there are a few that are like explicit in this passage. So, so let's look at it. He's looking particularly at the songbook of Israel, the Psalms. These are songs that people would have sung, people would know, royal psalms, psalms of lament. And so on the cross, Matthew basically skips over all the pictures uh, and really telling us about the resurrection. There's no mention of Jesus being nailed to the cross. All of a sudden, boom, he's just on the cross. He's there. Rather, Matthew is focusing on Jesus and what was going on around him, what was happening as he hung on the cross. The first thing Matthew brings up to his readers is that Jesus would not take wine mixed with gall. Uh, and this kind of, the hearers would, would hear this and think, oh, Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, it reads this, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. See, Jesus is the righteous man before his enemies in Psalm 69, here while he's on the cross. Now, Jesus refuses to drink it. And many think this is because, you know, Jesus probably wanted to stay conscious, or maybe it was just really bitter. But I remember that, well, I guess you would say last night, as he was taking, having supper with his disciples, Jesus said that he would not drink wine again until he drinks it with his disciples in his Father's kingdom. The time for drinking wine hadn't come yet since the Last Supper. This is Friday. Not yet the time to drink wine in the kingdom. It's like those going to battle. You know, those going to war or uh, playing in a playoff, an NHL playoff game. There are certain celebratory things, certain celebratory pleasures that you don't take part in before a big game. There's a time for everything. And Good Friday was a day that Jesus was going into battle for the lives of others, laying his life down so others could live and be free. It's like D-Day when Dwight Eisenhower said, full victory is what is required, nothing else. To paratroopers who were, who were going, knowing that many of them weren't going to be coming back. Jesus knew that he was going to have to die to achieve victory over sin and death. And he willingly went for you and for me and all who put their trust in him. 
And on the cross, he won that victory over our sin and the enemy of our souls. Next, Matthew shows that the people around Jesus are saying the same thing as those in a different psalm, Psalm 22. This is what Psalm 22 says, and Matthew almost uses this word for word. All who see me mock me, wrote the psalmist. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. People passing by, hurling insults, shaking their heads. The chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. Jesus was mocked, insulted, even the thieves beside him. He was naked before everyone. He endured shame, cruel punishment, humiliation, abandonment, alone, hanging on a cross, and finally Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is, as one preacher said, emotionally deserted, socially abandoned, spiritually separated. What happened? Jesus took the spiritual separation of sinners upon himself. Now, sometimes we hear this and and people like to spin this. Wow. Jesus takes this punishment. He has to take this wrath. It It doesn't seem right for God to punish his kid for something we deserve. That's cosmic child abuse. Sometimes we hear. But that's wrong. Theologian Jean Veith says, the key to this atonement is the Trinity. The Father and the Son are equally part of the Godhead. So it would be as if the judge himself takes the punishment of the condemned. On the cross, God not only takes the punishment, but even our sins onto himself. See, there's atonement. Uh, That word means to repair a wrong, to cover over someone's debt. The forsakenness that we deserved was experienced by Jesus on the cross. Sin and shame results in broken relationships, and Jesus is experiencing what we justly deserve. If he had not stepped in to take our place, we would have. Now to Matthew's Jewish audience, the timing and and all the things that are happening around Jesus' death signifies that something special is happening. The night before Jesus was crucified, they're celebrating the Passover and eating the Passover meal. And the Passover was a commemoration of what God had done for the people of Israel. Uh, when, when they had been delivered from Egypt, they, had, they sacrificed the lamb. There was, there was a time where they sacrificed the lamb. It had to be a firstborn, male, innocent, without blemish lamb. And they would sprinkle the lamb's blood on their doorposts. And the angel of death passed over them. And it led them to be set free, the people of Israel, set free from slavery in Egypt. And it, it, it not only showed liberation from slavery, but also the shedding blood, shedding of blood as a means of that redemption, how they were set free. In Leviticus, God is speaking to Moses and he says, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. See, Jesus' death took place to fulfill this. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He was slain During the Passover, a perfect lamb, he did not sin, no blemish, so that the angel of death might pass over us. He even took the place of Barabbas, an actual criminal. You and I were Barabbas, guilty but set free because Christ took our place. Christ the lamb. 
We deserve to be on that cross because of our sin, but God, the righteous judge, the one we offended, stepped in, put himself in our place, and died for us. Let's look at what else happened. Verse 50. And when Jesus has cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Already, we've seen creation move in response to Jesus' death on the cross. It got dark at noon. I mean, that doesn't just happen. We would be freaked out if that happened. Jesus died. The earth shook, rock split. And then we see that when Jesus rose again, other people rose too. I mean, all of creation is responding to this event. This is significant. Old Testament prophets told of this day. I want to look at Micah. Micah 1, he says this. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart. Like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. For Matthew, the darkness, the earth shaking, the rock splitting apart symbolizes the depth of human sin and God's judgment on it. God is judging sin and taking the punishment himself. The prophets Joel and Amos, they often refer to something called the day of the Lord, which has an army coming. It's a day of darkness. Things go dark. Not a day of light. Not yet. But Micah, I think, captures well what's happening on the cross. God is coming down from his dwelling place, and his wrath is being poured out. His just wrath for sin that day. And that day it fell upon Jesus, God himself. Not on you or I who were enemies of God who deserved it, but that day it fell on Jesus, and it was a once-for-all sacrifice. The scriptures were fulfilled that day. Jesus was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace fell on him, and by his death, God's wrath was satisfied. Paul says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, on the cross, Jesus took my sin and my shame on himself. You know shame. I have stuff I'd rather you didn't know about, and you have stuff you'd rather I didn't know about. You know that? He took that sin, that sin and shame. Your sin, your shame on the cross. He died a shameful death. And you know, you might say, well, where's the shame really for Jesus? I mean, Jesus died, but he didn't do anything wrong. He never did the things I did. He never actually had to live with the consequences or live life with the ne- life-nagging guilt that I feel. Never had to endure having the life constantly sucked out of him any times he thinks of what he did. Never really had his own shame. But it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus, the righteous one, who had all the chance in the world to vindicate himself, actually did experience the exhausting, overwhelming shame of the cross. He was publicly humiliated, as we read. Naked, fully exposed before everyone. Raised up on a cross as a criminal. Spit on, 
even by the very people who he'd come to save. People who had seen him heal and love people, and yet they didn't believe. They didn't trust him because of what was happening to him. He was naked, alone, emotionally deserted, socially abandoned, and spiritually separated for our sake. See, shame drives us apart. We experience separation when we, when we have shame. We hide it. We're alone. And Jesus experienced that on the cross, experiencing the alienation that our sin causes from the Father and internally dealing with it to the point where he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel shame? Do you feel pain? Jesus does identify with you, and he died for that. He died to bring that shame and pain, that burden you carry, and to take it away on the cross. You know, I think sometimes it's easier for us to be like, you know, I get that positionally speaking, before God, my shame is gone because of Jesus, but I'm still dealing with the social and the emotional, the physical and spiritual implications of it. It feels like this heavy weight on my shoulders. See, this goes all the way back to Genesis. Before sin entered the world, there was no shame. Shame. It says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed in Genesis 2. And then in Genesis 3, they sinned. And they were ashamed because of it. They saw that they were naked and then they tried to do two things. Cover it up by themselves and hide. First they sew fig leaves together and they make loincloths. And then they hide, they hid from God when they heard the sound of God walking through the garden. This is what we do with our sin and shame. Uh, psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says, we walk on earth burdened by the ancient code that we received from our first parents. It says, Adam and Eve felt like they had little left to do but just hide it from God, deal with it themselves. Rather than be vulnerable and open to God, the community, the community they have with God, gets shut out. And that's what we do to God and to others. But, Thompson says, God's relationship with Adam and Eve has not been as a casual bystander, but rather his presence is necessary for them to experience the joy that they'd known. We need restored relationships. Hiding our sin and shame behind fig leaves will only cement its hold on us. See, sin and shame holds on, constantly accusing us. And that's what Satan is called, an accuser. And he even accuses those who have trusted in Jesus, constantly bringing up our past, making accusations. Last year, I was walking downtown in Vancouver with some youth, and we were talking to people, and I talked to this one guy about Jesus, and his response to me was, you know, until I can forgive myself and get right with God, you know, maybe I'll consider it, but I've just done too many bad things. And we hear this all the time. I can't forgive myself. You know, I... I knew I should have been there or done this or shouldn't have done that, but I was selfish and I did this or I didn't do that. I can never forgive myself for that. Do you have something like that? Something you're holding on to or maybe it feels like it's holding on to you? You feel trapped by your sin and shame and you can't forgive yourself? Well, do you have to forgive yourself? There's good news in Jesus' death about forgiveness. And one pastor says this, there's no category of self-forgiveness in the Bible. And what a freeing truth. Your shame and guilt does not depend on your ability to, to forgive yourself. 
See, you can't forgive yourself the way that Jesus can. You can't do enough good things to have your sins forgiven. And so you don't need to base your hope of forgiveness on yourself and your own ability. Jesus takes that shame. He's naked, hanging on a cross, so that you could be forgiven. So bring your sin and shame to God. He's not a casual bystander. Just like when he came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, God came down and bore your sin and your shame on the cross. Martin Luther, a reformer of the church, he wrote this, Take your sins and throw them on Christ. Believe with a joyful spirit that your sins are his wounds and sufferings. He carries them and makes satisfaction for them. If we dwell too much on our sins, going over and over them in our conscience, keeping them close to our hearts, soon they will become too much for us to manage and they will live forever. But when we see our sins laid on Christ and we see him triumph over them by his resurrection and fearlessly believe this, our sins are dead and become nothing. Our sins don't stay on Christ, but are swallowed up by his resurrection. When we trust in Jesus as our Savior, we're united with him in such an amazing way that our lives begin to change. We hear Paul write these things in his letters over and over again. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live, not I, but Christ that lives within me. Or in Romans 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, when you, when you think of yourself, do you see yourself as united with Jesus in his death and resurrection and with one another in the body of Christ, the church? On the cross, we're united with Jesus Christ in his death. The sin that entangles, that condemned us, was paid for by Jesus' blood. We're dead but alive. There's this pastor who, who once told a story of a couple in Iowa named Norma and Gordon Yeager. There's a picture of them there. Uh, they were in a car crash at 90 and 94 years of age. And in the hospital, they were holding hands in beds beside each other as they were being treated. And while they were holding hands in the hospital, Gordon died while still holding hands with Norma. He stopped breathing, his face went pale, but his heart monitor was still registering heartbeats. It's because he was still united with Norma, his wife. Her heartbeat was registering through his monitor while they were still holding hands. And you know, when we trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, it's like that for us. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, when we cling to him, his heartbeat becomes ours. His righteousness, as Paul wrote, becomes ours. And our sin is taken by him forever on the cross. We're united with him. That's where our shame is taken away. So we need to confess and lay our shame at the foot of the cross with everyone else. Brene Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston and an author, writes that universally the shame that hits everyone, it needs to be spoken. 
Shame derives its power from being unspeakable, she writes. That's why it loves perfectionists. It's so easy to keep us quiet. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. If we speak shame, it begins to wither. If we confess our sins, the Bible says God is faithful and just. He justly took the punishment for our sin and is faithful, despite what others around us might be. He is faithful to forgive us our sins because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the psalmist writes, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God's hands. The one who loved you even as you rebelled, even as you were his enemy. Oh, church, if we would lay hold of that, you know, and allow that to be embodied in our community, that we might be a place where sinners come, confess, lay down their shame, and sit at the foot of the cross and find life and hope in God. This is why we confess our sin to one another. It says in James, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Where sin and shame sit in the dark, there it grows. Name it and pray for it. Speak the truth of the gospel to one another. Pray for one another. You know, Jesus has died for your sin and taken it on the cross. All of it. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. Trust in him. It says the one who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. And it says in the, in the Bible also that I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Those things that the shame is gnawed at and eaten away. Never again will my people be shamed. Yes, years are restored to you. Eternal years restored to you when you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. Behold the man upon the cross, emotionally deserted, socially abandoned, and spiritually separated. He was forsaken and deserted so that we won't be. You know, those who are in Jesus can cling to the promise that he will be with us until the end of the age. Jesus died a shameful death, socially abandoned, ridiculed, so that we don't have to carry the burden of shame anymore and can lay it on Jesus at the cross. Jesus was spiritually separated because of our sin, so that, united with him, we could be brought into a relationship with God. Never forsaken. Sin's power over us, defeated at the cross. And the last laugh and ultimate consequence, death, defeated three days later. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. It's pure grace. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen.